0: A reading from Psalm 103, verses through 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins Thanks be to God for
1: the word. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. We thank you for calling us together, for gathering us in this place. And God, we, we pray that you would that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see your goodness as we engage with this text. And most importantly, God, we pray that we would behold Jesus through it. Uh, maybe he may, may he be magnified uh, by the preaching of his word and by our listening. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray amen. Well, psychological research has consistently shown that people tend to remember negative experiences and information more vividly and for longer periods than positive ones. This phenomenon is often referred to as the negativity bias. And while some of us may see ourselves overall as positive people, we are all susceptible to this negativity bias in one way or another. This impacts the way that we see the world and it impacts the way that we see ourselves. So for example, if someone came up to me and asked me, Nick, what are your top five proudest moments? I'd have a really hard time coming up with that list. If on the other hand someone came up to me and said, Nick, what are your top five most embarrassing moments? Like 20 things would come to mind immediately. Like at one time, uh, I was in the middle of preaching a sermon, similar to what I'm doing right now, and I was building it towards a point, and and uh, I, I was I was getting into it, I was I was getting emphatic, and right as I was about to deliver a line that I had been building towards up to that point, my front tooth popped right out of my mouth. Um, this tooth right here is an implant. And I was in the process of getting that put in as I was kind of cutting my chops as a preacher. And 99% of the time, the, I had a, sorry, I had a temporary tooth in the meantime. 99% of the time, that temporary tooth did its job. But of course, in the one moment where it was the least convenient, it just pops straight out. And I was mortified. But it was a memorable sermon. So that was, that was exciting. All right. We all have embarrassing things. Right, things that we are not proud of. But more than that, we have things that we are downright ashamed of. And one of our greatest fears is being marked by those things. No one wants to be remembered for the very worst things that they've done. But God in the gospel alleviates those fears by assuring us that as far as the east is from the west, so far, Does he remove our transgressions from us? So think for a second about those things, those things that you don't like to think about. Think about those things that you've said or done, those things that keep you up at night, the things that continually give you feelings of guilt and shame. And now allow this truth to wash over you. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is the grace of our God. And God's grace is going to be our focus this morning, and we're going to look at three aspects of it. First, the need for grace. Second, the extent of God's grace. And third, the root of God's grace. So let's start together by looking at the need for God's grace. Now, I think that before we can celebrate the gift of God's grace, we have to talk about what it is and why it is that we need it. A theologian named Michael Horton defines grace as God's free favor towards sinners on account of Christ. Grace is essentially God looking at us despite our actions, despite the various things that we have done to disqualify ourselves from entering into relationship with him. It is God, grace is God looking at us despite all of that and saying that we are accepted, that we belong, that we get to be his children. And in Horton's discussion of grace, he quotes another theologian named Karl Barth, who said that grace is always God's turning to those who, who not only do not deserve this favor, But have deserved the very opposite. And why is it that we have deserved the very opposite? Well, let's look at some of our verses together. Starting in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, then to verse 12, or nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. These verses from our text acknowledge the reality of our sin and our frailty. We need grace because we have sins. We've committed iniquities and transgressions. And because we are dust, we don't have the ability to deal with them on our own. Now, this line of thinking isn't particularly popular today. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinful people I think if you ask the average person on the street, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Most people would respond by saying, yeah, I'm a a pretty good person. But the problem is is that we tend to look to the wrong standard. We look horizontally. We look at one another and compare ourselves to other people and think, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'm doing all right, instead of looking up to God, who is the actual standard. I had an experience of a category shift my freshman year of high school. Uh, right before the school year started, I tried out for the basketball team. Um, and the school that I went to was a, a good sized school, and we had a pretty solid basketball program. So we had four teams there's freshman, sophomore, JV, and varsity. And there were a ton of kids that came out uh, to try out. Uh, But after about 20 minutes of trying out, me and about four other kids got pulled out, and I got led to a different gym where we were told that we had made the sophomore team. And I was elated. I was over the moon. Because in my mind, this was confirmation of the fact that not only was was I pretty all right at basketball, I was great at basketball, so instead of continuing to try out, me and these other guys uh, worked out with our new teams. We had a, our first sophomore practice together, and the practice ended with a scrimmage, but we got to scrimmage the varsity team, and there's a guy on the varsity team, also named Nick. Uh, he, uh, he was, he was a, w- uh, the star player. I didn't really know it at the time. I hadn't gone to any, any of the games before, trying out for for the team, but this other Nick um, was a good-sized kid. He was about six four, but you know, it's tall, but it's not basketball tall. But the thing that set this other Nick apart was that, in addition to being six foot four, he had a forty-inch vertical. Now, again, I didn't know who he was, but I didn't know about his forty-inch vertical, but I learned about it at that scrimmage, um, and I learned about it in a play where he stole the ball at half court and was on a fast break, and I was the only defender anywhere near. It was just me and him, Nick on Nick. And uh, he showed off his 40-inch vertical as he jumped over me and dunked on me in a way that I wouldn't wish for any of you to have to experience. And that was the last time I ever stepped foot on a basketball court, no. Um, now I I played for a couple of years and, and had fun with it, but never again was I allowed to live with the delusion that I was a great basketball player because I encountered someone who actually was quite good. My standard for what good constituted completely changed. See, typically when we say, I'm a good person, again, we're comparing ourselves just to other people. But the problem with that is, according to our text, we are dust. We are dust comparing ourselves to other dust, but the standard is the rock which is what Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10.4. Jesus is what defines goodness. He is the standard. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is the standard that we're supposed to live up to? Well, it's perfection. It is Jesus. We are dust compared to that rock. So if we are going to be accepted, It needs to be on the basis of grace. But thankfully, that is exactly what is offered to us in the gospel. We need grace and a whole lot of it, but our God is full of grace and mercy. All right, so that's the need for grace. Let's now look at the extent of God's grace. Uh, There's a famous story about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the author of the Sherlock Holmes Mysteries. And he apparently loved practical jokes, and he decided to play one on 12 of his friends. And so as the story goes, he once sent a telegram to these 12 friends, who are all respected members of society. And the only thing that this telegram said was, all is discovered, flee at once. And apparently all 12 friends left the country. Now, it's likely that the story is apocryphal. However, it gets at at a difficult truth, that we all have things that we would rather keep hidden. As the Greek philosopher Sophocles once remarked, there is no witness so terrible, no accuser so powerful as the conscience which dwells within us. There's a show on Netflix called Black Mirror, in, uh, in the most recent season, there's an episode about a woman who, unbeknownst to her, had her entire day turned into a Netflix-type drama. Uh, it showed her this, the, this show that she watched of herself. It showed her singing in her car, embarrassingly. Uh, it showed her gossiping in her office. It showed her lying to her fiancé, compromising values she supposedly held dear. Now, at the end of this day... It seemed to her like it was a normal day. She didn't seem bothered by any of the day's events until she discovered that it was projected for the whole world to see. Now imagine, what if everyone was allowed to see into your life like that? Able to see all the things that you really say, all the things that you really do, all the things that you really think throughout the day, unedited no explanations, no caveats, no excuses. I sit with that for just a sec. That reality for most of us would be terrifying. But friends, that terrifying thought is actually a reality to the one audience that truly matters. Psalm 139 tells us, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. God knows everything about us the good, the bad, and the ugly. There is no pretending with God. That's terrifying, right? Well, in the gospel, friends, it doesn't have to be because he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God knows everything about us. He is intimately acquainted with all all of our ways. Sin cannot be hidden from Him. And what does He do with that? Does He condemn us for our sin? Does He hold it over our heads as a continual reminder of all of the ways that we fall short? No, He removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And how far is the east from the west? the distance is immeasurable, and that is the point. And this promise is actually reiterated and and made perhaps even more dramatic in Jeremiah 31-34, where God declares, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse in Jeremiah two times, once in chapter 8 and another time in in chapter 10, with the assurance that these words have come to fruition in Jesus. How? Because our sin has been dealt with once and for all in him. As the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 explains, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, sin is real. It has real effects. It causes real pain. But God, in his grace, chooses not to deal with us according to our sins. But instead, he gives us the gift of Jesus. Who, despite never having sinned himself, took our sins on him and suffered their consequences on the cross so that we could be seen as righteous. In doing this, Jesus removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he makes it possible for our sins to be remembered no more. This is something that we all long for, isn't it? I recently listened to an episode of the podcast Radio Lab um, entitled The Right to Be Forgotten. And I focused on the online news site, Cleveland.com. It's the online wing of the Plain Dealer, which apparently is one of the bigger newspapers in Ohio. And this particular site, Cleveland.com, is wrestling with the notion of the right to be forgotten. See, historically, the way things worked with newspapers, a story could be reported on, uh, it would be printed, distributed, and then read. And then what would happen to a newspaper after it was read? would get thrown away or use it to wrap fish or something. Some people might remember names and events, but, if, but, but a lot of them, a lot of them would be forgotten. So if you did something that you were embarrassed by, even if it was reported on in a, in a large publication, it's likely that with time or with a move, those things wouldn't necessarily follow, follow you. You'd have, Someone would have to go down to an archive and do some pretty labor-intensive searching in order to find dirt on somebody else. But in the internet age, nothing is forgotten. And so now we are in a position where thousands of people make a mistake. Years and years pass, but the first thing that pops up when their name is searched in Google is the biggest mistake that they've ever made. So, there's a movement now where people are writing to publications like cleveland.com and asking that their names be removed from stories reporting on those mistakes. And these publications are establishing committees to review such cases and decide who does or who does not have the, quote, right to be forgotten. And it's a good thing to, to think through because, you know, we don't want to be known primarily by our biggest mistakes. But as one scholar from UNC Chapel Hill School of Media and Journalism pointed out, the idea that we're going to be able to expunge people's records online is a pipe dream. She says, quote, we're never going to be able to eradicate our past. That ship has sailed. And as our world gets smaller and more connected, the hope of a true fresh start, it fades more and more. But I think it's so interesting that we are wrestling with these questions because it gets at a deep need that we all feel. We don't want to be defined by our mistakes. But the hope isn't eradicating our records online, no, the hope is in the gospel. We need God to remove our transgressions from us, and this is exactly what he has done in Jesus Now, a few verses before the verses that we see here on the screen, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And how is that possible? Because though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our record of debt that we tend to be so well acquainted with has been canceled. It has been nailed to the cross. It died. It was put away with Jesus. Jesus paid our debt to society so that it can never be brought up again. So those things that you are ashamed of, the things that you said to your spouse or to your kids that you you can't take back, the ways that you let other people down, the ways that you let yourself down, your enduring sins, your addictions, your lusts, your coldness, your judgmentalism, those sources of shame that you just can't seem to shake, those have been dealt with definitively in Jesus so that they no longer define you. Your record has been nailed to the cross so that in Christ you might be a new creation. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Well, we've looked at the need for grace and the extent of grace. The last thing I want us to consider together is the root of grace. So where does the grace of God come from? Well, Let's look at verse 8 in our passage. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See, God's grace is part of his very essence To quote Michael Horton once again, In grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace then is not a third thing or substance mediating between God and sinners, but it is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. So the description that we have of God in verse 8 is Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a description that we see throughout the Bible. I'm going to put a few examples of of this description up here on the screen. This is three different places where it appears in Exodus, in our passage, Psalm 103, and then again in Nehemiah 9. And the very first verse on that list, Exodus 34, 6, that, that verse appears in a passage in which Moses comes before God and he asks God, would you please show me your glory? And God tells him, I'm going to declare my name to you and I'm going to reveal myself to you in a unique way. And that's exactly what happens. So God comes before Moses and he declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, which is God saying his covenant, his relational name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he proceeds to give some of the key descriptions of who he is. And this is something that, that we do as well. Right? When we're introduced to someone new, right, we say our names and then it's usually followed by a brief description, some of the, the key elements of who we are. When our son Oliver was preparing for his first day of kindergarten a few days ago, we asked him if he was nervous about making friends or if he remembered how to make friends. And he was very confident. He said, yeah, I know how to make friends. We're like, okay, well, how how are you gonna do it? And he said, well, I'll go up to someone and I'll say, hi, my name is Oliver. I like blue and green and baseball. Do you want to be my friend? Is in Oliver's mind like those are the essential elements of who he is. I am. That's my name, and these are my favorite colors. And baseball's great, right? Like, who doesn't who doesn't want that? Right. Now we tend to have different ways of, of addressing that or doing that as we get older. Perhaps they're they're slightly more sophisticated, but we still do this. Right, when asked who I am, I'll say my, my name, and I'll talk about how I'm Katie's husband, Harper and Oliver's dad. I'm a pastor of Aliso Creek Church, right? And I like blue and green and baseball. Uh, but God, when, when he has the opportunity to do that, he declares his name, "The Lord, the Lord," followed by his essential nature, his essential attributes. Now what does he say? Does he say, I am the Lord, the Lord, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, in a way that you're, you know, that three-and-a-half-pound meat sack that you call a brain, can't really even fully fathom, that's who I am? No. God could have very well begun by describing his greatness, his majesty, his power, but he doesn't do that. When he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the first thing that he goes to you, is mercy and grace. What is it that you need to know about me, Moses? It is that I am a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is full of wisdom, yes. Justice, yes. Righteousness, absolutely. But what is the first thing that he mentions? Mercy and grace. In grace, God gives us nothing less than himself. And when we see God's grace, when we experience his love and his forgiveness, that changes everything. Grace does have the power to change us. I saw a a really, or I've seen a really interesting and compelling example of grace and its ability to change things in the world of sports recently. Um, In Philadelphia, of all places, a city which, despite being named the city of brotherly love, isn't really known as a forgiving sports town. Uh, The Philadelphia Phillies, at the beginning of this season, acquired all-star shortstop Trey Turner, uh, formerly of the Dodgers. Um... I would want to say he's dead to me now, but that wouldn't be very gracious. Uh, but formerly of the Dodgers, they, they picked up this shortstop for uh, an 11 year contract for the, the small price tag of $300 million. Uh, and he was expected to have a huge impact on, on the team this season. And with that kind of money, he was really expected to make a big impact on the team this season. But unfortunately, for the Philadelphia Phillies and for Trey Turner, he has had the worst season of his career so far. And at several points throughout the season, Philly fans have booed him. Uh, their own, a $300 million star player when he steps to the plate, is, is getting booed. But on August 4th, all of that changed. Uh, there's a well-known fan uh, known as the Philly Captain, who put out a video in which he urged fans not to boo Trey Turner but instead to give him a standing ovation every time he stepped to the plate. And that is exactly what happened. So he walks out despite his his poor batting average and poor overall performance, having done nothing to deserve a standing ovation from Philadelphia fans. Starting on on August 4th, which was a Friday, through the entire weekend, every time he walked up to the plate, fans stood to their feet and went nuts for him. And you know what happened? He started playing incredibly. He went on an absolute tear. He hit more home runs in the two weeks following the ovation than he had in the previous two months leading up to it. Uh, his, there's a bunch of statistics that I don't really know what they mean anymore because baseball has changed dramatically, um, but they've all gone up and it's really impressive. And in response to, uh, to Philadelphia fans, Trey Turner has, has bought all kinds of billboards throughout the city, and he's put a picture of himself with just the words, thanks, Philly, which, <laughs> which he, can, he can afford it. Um, but it's just, it's one of the most heartwarming things that I, I think I've ever heard of in sports, and it's a story of grace and the way that grace has the ability to impact us. This person had been letting his fans down all season, but they decided, you know, you're our guy. We're going to support you. We're behind you. And instead of that leading him to just take it easy, and it's like, well, I don't need to perform. I'm getting standing ovations every time I go into the plate. No, it it caused him. It gave him what he needed in order to, to be himself. And friends, that is the way that God's grace works in our lives. God, instead of being this cruel taskmaster, giving us this list of expectations and waiting for us to fail and pointing out all the ways in which we do, no, he gives us what we need first. He adopts us. He calls us his children. And it's that grace that enables us to actually act like it. Grace has the capacity to change us from the inside out. It changes things. It changes us. So this week, I would encourage you, take some time to contemplate the amazing grace of our God. Pray that the Spirit would do the difficult work of searching you, seeing all of the things that are in your heart. Pray that He would be brutally honest in His revelation of those things to you so that you could celebrate God's grace that much more. Even as things are revealed that we don't like seeing, even as things that are revealed that, that we're just frankly ashamed of, we don't need to fear. Because what does God do with our sin? Our God, who is merciful and gracious, so slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he will, not, he will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Our God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, meditate on these truths and ask that our God would use them to change you from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of grace, God, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, you are great, you are glorious, you are righteous, you execute justice. All of those things, God, are true of you. You deserve our fear and our reverence. But God, when you act towards us, you do so with grace and mercy. As a father has compassion on his children, you say that you have compassion on us. God, help us to know that. Help us to believe that. Or despite... Despite our sins, despite the things that we're ashamed of that that so easily come to mind, Lord, help us to cling to the truths of your grace. And we pray, God, as we do so, that that grace would change us, that you'd make us who we are, a new creation in Christ, your sons and daughters. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.